0: We've been doing a series from Psalm 119, and that's where I want to draw your attention back to Psalm 119. The passage before us today is uh, from verses 113 to uh, 136. And as we've been looking through this uh, psalm, we've recognized that the theme that comes back again and again. Is the supremacy and the sufficiency of god's word that god's word is what we need and and as we read this, there are two types of people that we will recognize. One is what we read here in the psalm as the servant of the Lord. the servant of the Lord is the one who wants to obey what God's word says because if there is something that God has said. It requires, it demands a response. And the servant of the Lord is the one who obeys the uh, word. And the psalmist wants to align himself with this being the servant of the Lord. And the other one is the wicked they call the wicked again and again. They call the wicked. They're the ones who hear God's word but say no, or they don't obey. They they reject God's word, and and the psalmist is trying to separate himself from uh, the wicked. And today, in this in this passage that we have from verse one thirteen to one thirty eight, I I believe our tension point is between this separation there is this urgency that that the psalmist has if you will turn with me first to verse 126 psalm 119 verse 126 it's a time it is time for the lord to act or oh lord it is time for you to act depending on your translation it says that it's time for you to act lord there's this urgency in the heart of the psalmist as he sees this name of God not being uh, honored by the wicked. There is this urgency for God's intervention. And yet, the hope, the confidence that the psalmist has that God will fulfill his promise. I grew up not too far from rail tracks railway tracks and uh we've done silly things there knowing it's uh, you know you there is it's, it's a dangerous place to be playing uh, one of the things that we would do is to we would run on the we would call those the sleepers you know those wooden tr- uh, uh uh the w- the ones that grip the rail to the thing, they're these wooden parts. So what happens is because it's even equidistant, you can actually run on that, and you you know—you actually uh, improve your running. I mean, how foolish it is, but we used to do that. One thing, though, one thing, though, we were all told is that never get your foot between the, the rail, and some parts where the rail comes and joins the other part, you had to be so careful that you don't put your foot there because if somewhere else they move the rail, uh, your foot can get stuck in there. I'm, I'm not sure whether you understand what I'm talking about, but, uh, but that's the sense I get when I read this passage, that the foot is stuck, as it were. The psalmist is saying, it's time for you to act. There's like this urgency, all right? So let me just pray, and then we'll get to what we have today. Father, we we thank you for your word and thank you for the recognition lord that your word demands a response and action and we pray that we would be uh, obedient to your word we will honor your word and nothing else nothing else we want to align ourselves with what it's what the psalmist is saying speak to us lord about this tension that we see in this passage between the urgency that the pa- that the psalmist uh, is praying for, and yet the 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 hope of the patience that he knows that you will do all things beautiful in your time. We thank you again for your word, and thank you again for your presence here in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. We pray, Amen, Amen. I'm not sure whether you heard of this. It's called the Honko Second. It's a new phrase that's come out. And it's called the honkosecond. The way the honkosecond is defined is it, it said is the shortest time known to man, and honkosecond is the time between the lights turn green and the person behind you honks. Dad joke, I understand. But the point is there is this urgency that is becoming almost impatient. This honkosecond, this this thing that I can't wait. I need things to move along. And we see here with this urgency with which the psalmist is saying it's time for you to act, O God. There's this palpable tension. He's saying you need to act, O God, you need to act. And yet as you read this passage, there is this dependence in God's word. Saying that you, O God, who promised, will fulfill what you have said. Before I move in there, I want to give you a, 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 another example where this principle of this honkosecond second, as it were, plays out. At the same time, there's this tension that God answers prayer. In Matthew chapter 14, it's a time where Jesus had just fed the 5,000 people. Now, the word immediately is mostly used by Mark, right? Mark is the one who constantly says immediately, immediately, immediately. And yet, in in this chapter, three times, Matthew uses the word immediately. So, immediately after the 5,000 are fed, Jesus asks the disciples to get onto the boat and go. And then there is this waves, there is this wind, and they are desperate. And Jesus walks on the water. As he approaches them, they see Jesus and think, It's the ghost, and they cry out, and Jesus immediately responds to them. We read the word immediately again, and Peter then says, I want to get onto the water. God, this is cool. I want to get onto the water, so he gets into the water, but he begins to sink, and he cries out, and and we read there, immediately Jesus reaches out and holds him and pulls him up. So this word immediately, again and again coming there, but I want you to understand in this context as I read that, I saw that it was still a chapter of patience and hope because Jesus approaches them at around three in the morning. They've actually gotten into the boat at sunset. And all that time, they're trying to row and get to the other side. And, and if I were one of the disciples, I would want Jesus to be there before the storm began. I want him to be there in the honk second. I want him there right there. But Jesus allows for that time and he still comes. He still delivers and fulfills. But that time in between, the time when we are desperate for God to come and he, we think that he must come and he must act and he, he should be there. I can't, I can't hold on. And yet God says, You know, I do all things beautiful in my time. The tension. The tension. So keeping that in mind, what I'd like to uh, t- draw your attention to is, um, if you can just move to the next slide for me. Okay. I, I, I want us to look at this spaces that we have from three angles or three uh, viewfinders, as it were. The first one is from the viewpoint of the writer. I want you want you to hear his supplication, his prayer, and then we we'll look at the Word from the viewfinder of the word god's word, and how it sustains us and third, we will see from the from how the the wicked and how the psalmist wants to separate himself from the wicked and so those are the three things that we want to look at and so i want to invite you to the psalm that we have and i want you first to hear from the viewpoint of the writer his supplication his prayer psalm 119 i'm reading verse 114 see some of his supplication you are my hiding place and my shield i hope in your word Verse 116, uphold me according to your promise that I may live. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. 117, hold me up that I may, I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Verse 121, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. 122, give your servant a pledge for good. Let not the insolent oppress me. 124, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. teach me your statutes. 125, I'm your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. 126, it is time for the law to act for your law has been broken. And then in 132 and 133 and 134 and 135, it says in 135, it says, look on me. Um, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Now, think about this. The psalmist has gone back to the king of the universe again and again in the short passage, at least 12 times, he's having the supplication. I'm not sure how many of your bosses have said, I've got an open-door policy. You can come in, ask me any question. And you go there 12 times in 12 minutes. Your your, your boss is going to shut the door on you. As parents, sometimes, you know, if if you have this child coming back again and again and again and again after something, he says, go, go, hear your toys, play with them. But here we have the psalmist come back to the king of the universe with supplication and prayer and knowing that he'll be heard. I think about life as a, you know, as a, as a T-group experiment or a test group experiment. What I mean by that is you have these two groups of people. It's an unfair advantage, I would say. There is one group who have Christ and the other group who do not have Christ. Christ. And they are now being tested. Both of them have the same kind of test. Both of them have the same kind of storm. Both of them have the same kind of experience. One is not protected from from something else, and like both of them go through that, and yet the response is different because one has Christ, with Christ in the vessel, we have uh, we can smile at the storm. This this experience that the psalmist is saying, and listen to what it says here, we do not deny the diagnosis, but we defy the verdict. I love that phrase. We do not, we do not, den- we do not deny the diagnosis, but we defy the verdict. What it's saying is, listen, I understand we have the storm. We, we, it is tough. It is difficult. I, I don't deny the diagnosis. It is tough, but we defy the verdict. The response that we have is not like the rest of the world because we have Jesus Christ who is, who is the one who takes care of us. And that's what the psalmist recognizes. And I, I, I was reading about Johnny Erickson Tara, and those of you who know about her, she, when she was 16, had this diving accident and she's a paraplegic. She is a Paralyzed from neck down, and but she is in terrible pain. That every night her husband would have to move her so that uh, she's able to manage that pain, and 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 also to save her from bed sores. But more importantly, she is like, I'm done. I'm waiting for heaven. Like I need to go. You see, so. And she has been used so tremendously. It's just amazing the amount of songs and poems and the books that she's written. She is, she's been an encouragement to those who've been in pain. But her response, let me read to you from the book, Your Real Home. She writes, I want to quit this, I mumbled. I can't wait for heaven. But at the hope of heaven, I jerked my will right side up. Refocus my emotions and realign my thoughts. I mentally rehearsed a flood of other promises and fixed the eyes of my heart on unseen divine realities and future divine fulfillments. I zeroed in on a few heavenly coordinates to lift my sights above my physical pain. When we see him, we shall be like him. It is not a hope so hope, but it's a no so hope. What Johnny Erickson Tata is saying is this, listen, I know my pain is real. I don't deny my diagnosis, but I defy the verdict because this hope that I have is an assured hope, it's a confident hope. It's not a hope, it happens, kind of a hope, but it's a confident, assured hope because of Jesus Christ. That's what the psalmist is saying. And, and so this, this tension of the Honko Second, even for Johnny, Johnny Eric Santata, who's saying, I, I want to be released from this body, from this pain, from this body of pain. And yet each day she is not released. The delay does not mean there's a denial of our hope and our confidence in Jesus Christ. Psalm 42 is a beautiful psalm. Those of you who go through stress and pain and disillusionment or through depression, most of you would be referred to Psalm 42 to read that. The psalmist is saying, why are you disquieted in me, O my soul? Why is your face, your countenance down? That's what the psalmist is saying. And you read that psalm. And you might take comfort in that psalm, but I, I, there are two points, the two things I want to raise your attention to. One, it's called, it's the masculine psalm. It's the teaching psalm. That means there's something about it that's going to teach me something about it. And so that's one, the teaching psalm. But secondly, I want you to notice, it's the sons of Korah. It's written by sons of Korah. Now, Korah were the ones who rebelled against God. They had absolutely no Way the sons, the children should have been, should have had no place with God. You see, because they rebelled, they stood against Moses. They said, Moses, no, we don't want you. And the earth opened up and they get swallowed. But this psalm is written by the sons of Korah. Only God, only God can bring singing out of uh, uh, a death defying experience. Only God can do what no one else can do. When we think that there is no hope in anything else, we've come to the utter desperate scene. God is the one who raises that confidence up. That's the strength of Psalm 42. God alone. God alone. And so our confidence as we read through with the psalmist I want to encourage you when you go back to read the rest of it. I I stopped halfway through because of time, but I want to to urge upon you to get back to God's word and of how the psalmist has felt the comfort of God's word. Because the psalmist is able to say we don't deny the diagnosis, but we defy the verdict. God will fulfill his promises and his purposes even as our hearts cry out urgently for him to act. This is urgency in our heart for God to act. And yet, we know we have the confidence. That's the God that we believe in. A God who, once he says it, he fulfills it. That's the God that I want to draw your attention to—to to see the glories of Christ, as it were. I—I I, I don't know where your faith is, you know, or like, have you ever even know who Christ is, literally, or if you just, you know, culturally, you have said, "Yeah, I know Jesus Christ," but I, I'm reminded of this of um, this movie that Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, made it's called the final escape anybody heard of this the final escape no okay so I can say whatever I want and you'll believe me all right so the final escape I mean I think it's on YouTube maybe you can go look it up but the essence of the final escape is this 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 woman has been incarcerated and she's put in prison and so now she wants to escape So she realizes her only hope of escape is this grave digger. Every time an inmate dies, this grave digger would take the the body in the coffin, take the body out, and bury the body, and that was his role. And so she becomes friends with this old man, and this old man his eyesight is failing, and he, she convinces him, saying that if you let me escape, then I'll pay for your surgery, for your eyes. And so the plan was that she would get into one of the coffins when somebody dies, and that she'd be taken away, she'd be buried, but then the old man would come in later and rescue her. And, uh, you know, everything should be okay. And so once somebody dies and she gets into the coffin, she goes and she is buried, but nobody comes to rescue. So she's getting desperate. She's crying out. Nobody can hear her because she's six feet under the ground. And there she strikes a match to see, to to look around to see what is happening. And then she turns around and she realizes the one she's buried with is the old man. The old man was the one who died and she is now buried with that old man. She's buried with a savior who's supposed to save her. Not so our God. Our God who came down as man. He died, he was buried, but he rose again. He's the one who says. Three days, and I will, I will rebuild, and I will build back. And when he says, I will rescue, he does. His salvation is secure. What, what he says, he fulfills. And that is the confidence that the psalmist has. And that's the confidence you can have if you trust on him, saying he is the one who came back from the dead. As we were reminded this morning, he came to rescue. He came, and because of him, we can live. First Corinthians 15:4 says that, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture. As uh, the confidence of the writer is the confidence of those who trusted in Jesus Christ. But let's also look through the second view find of the word, and look at the sustenance, this sustenance. Verse 114 says, "Your word uh, is I hope in your word. it's a hope." Verse 116, uphold me according to your promise. It's a promise. Your word is like a promise. What you say, you fulfill that I may live. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. Verse 123, when you connect it back there, it says, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You see, it's a righteous promise, what you say you will fulfill. Verse 117, Uphold me up that I may be safe. It keeps me safe. It's like a safety harness that I need in this world. 122, Give your servant a pledge for good a pledge, it's a pledge, God giving you a pledge for good, uphold me according to that, let not the insolent oppress me, 122 and 127, therefore I love your commandments about gold, about fine gold, about gold about fine gold it 's like the it 's something that sustains me that 's what the psalmist is saying. This is what I need. this is like my compass. this is what is is putting the stake on the ground. It tells me who I am gives me the confidence of who I am. It was in the uh, late nineties well, you may have heard about the story when uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., that is a son of John F. Kennedy, he had gotten onto a plane with his wife and his sister, and he crashed and they died. It was found later the reason that it happened is even though he was a licensed pilot, even though he knew how to fly, he didn't know how to use the instruments. He could fly during the daytime maybe because, you know, you get to see if you're not flying too high where you are. But without that, in the dark, you're completely lost. You don't know your north from your south. And I get a sense sometimes that most of us who given up on imbibing God's word, on being soaked up in God's word, we have given up our central compass. We have given up what God is intending for our faith and for our life. Without this word, there's no way we can be fixed on who we ought to be. The centrality of God's word. I want to give you two examples from the Old Testament. One is David, and the second is Josiah. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he had just become the king. After a long time, he finally has become the king. And in response to that, the Philistines had come. It says they've covered the valley of uh, Rephaim, it says. And... and This is going to be the first battle, as it were, for David as a king. He had to prove himself. He had to say, I was great as a rebel, as, you know, out there uh, taking care of 400 people. But now as a king, I have to prove myself. He had to act in the honk of second, if you would. Like, I have to act. I can just be sitting back. But what does he do? It says there that he spoke. He inquired of the Lord in verse 19. He inquired of the Lord. He pauses and he says, I understand the, this, this uh, tyranny of the urgent. I feel like I have to act. I have to do it. I have to do something. This, 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 a, these enemies are there. I have to act. But he goes and he inquires of the Lord. And God led him to attack and to defeat his enemies. And so what the Philistines do is they come back again. They're not just gone away. They come back again. They return in verse 22. What does David do again? He inquires again. Here is a man who is routed, who is rooted in God's word and therefore not routed. God's word, this centrality, and David is understood. No wonder he's called the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Then you think about Josiah, whose name was prophesied as the king who would come and who would upstay, uh, you know, um, uh, upset the altar uh, that Jeroboam had built against, uh, for Baal and for the calves. When Josiah became king, it was one of the darkest periods of Israel. Manasseh, his grandfather, was the most wicked king that Judah ever had. And after that, he ruled for more than 50 years. And after that, his son is ruling. And his son is also as wicked. Ammon is the son. Ammon is killed. And Josiah comes in to be the king. And he is as old as eight years old. Maybe Anshi or Annika or one of those. He becomes a king at that time. Darkest period just followers Manasseh and his father who've been wicked, the ones who've offered the children to, uh, to Molech, utter depravity. And he orders the cleansing of the Solomon's temple, which has been fallen into disrepair. And there, as the cleansing happens, they come across the book of the law. And so they bring it to the king, and the king is reading that, and he, he just tears his garment. He says, "What well, this is urgent. I have to act. I, I mean, God is, the, the wrath of God is on us because of what we, we, we have, you know, we have rejected him. And he begins this, this return of the nation of Israel back to God. <coughs> and it says there that he organized for worship, which... Uh, you know the, uh, the the Passover is you know is the picture of of salvation, isn't it? Because the angel of death had crossed over; they didn't die. In in Second Kings twenty three twenty two, it says this: Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges, who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Since they got into the land where judges were ruling, the kind of Passover that Josiah held had never happened, even through David's time or through Solomon's time and through any of those kings. He brings this worship back to the land, the kingdom of Judah. The urgency with which he acts. The honk of second. But you know something? How long it takes for revival to bring. If you watch the timeline. It takes four years before things start to move. You would think he's the king. It would be an overnight thing. Like people would be like okay king. I can do whatever you want. It takes them four years of sustained effort. For the nation of Israel. To turn back to God. The sometimes we want God to act so quickly and yes that's our prayer we want that to happen we see the Psalmist is doing it and yet not losing the confidence not being in despair for we know our God is the victorious one he fulfills It's time for you to act, oh God. Then the wicked. Look at their condition. And verse 113, I hate the double-minded. They're double-minded. And in another translation, it says they're not completely loyal. Verse 115, it says, depart from me, evildoers. They are evildoers. Verse 118, they're rejectors and wanderers from your statute. Verse 118, they're deceitful. Verse 119, they're like the dross. Verse 121, they're the oppressors. Verse 122, they're arrogant. Verse 126, they're like lawbreakers. 128, they follow false ways. And so all of these, the psalmist is rehearsing, And he says there are two responses as a result. One is biblical separation. The second is biblical sorrow. As a result of this, from what I see of the wicked, one, I need to have this biblical separation. I cannot be what the wicked are doing. And we can look at that in two ways. One is in this, we have to separate sin from our own personal lives, our own lives. We have to be, like, you can't do, you can't have sin in your life and hope God to work in you or to use you or that you would ever honor God. You have to remove sin. And then also sin from our corporate lives. I, I, I you know, whenever we read about the sin of Achan, remember Achan? When after Jericho, God had said, uh, after Jericho, when, you know, when they would go and besiege Jericho in the promised land, they were told not to take anything. And Achan takes for himself some garments and those things and hides himself. He thinks that nobody would know and he's found out. And I thought that was, th- that was it, right? It's about covetousness. But really, there are two sins there, if you really look at it, if you, as it plays out. One is that the sin, the personal sin of Achan, that brings in the defeat of the nation of Israel. The second is the nation of Israel themselves. And this is what, what is happening, because they go to Joshua, and they tell Joshua in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, it says, do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few they just Flush from the victory over Jericho. They're just coming. They say, oh, we've got Jericho. Now, Ai is nothing. They just got 3,000 people. We can take care of that. And so, Joshua, don't worry about bringing everybody out. We, we, we'll go with the, with the 3,000 and go fight them. You see, they forgot, they forgot that in Jericho, it wasn't their plan. It wasn't them who actually won Jericho. It was God. They just went round and round, but they assumed it was because of them. Arrogance and pride, self dependence, independence, whatever that be, we have to ask ourselves honestly. We would say we would separate ourselves. Separate ourselves from the lifestyle. Of, of the rest of the world. It's, it's important. What that means is this is not about physical separation because we are to be in the world but not of the world. We, we have to influence. We have to be the salt that influences them. But how can we show ourselves separate? Let me tell you this. Let, let's say you walk with me and I go into the bank and I rob the bank. Now walk out and you start walking with me. You have just become the accomplice. You didn't do anything, but just because you were with me before and after, you are now an accomplice. The world is looking at us saying that are we become an accomplice to what they're doing or is it because are we saying that or to be able to reach them, I have to be with them, like them, so that they can see who we are or are we saying, listen, I see where you are and I want you to know what God can do. It's not because me becoming like them, but, but they're becoming like Christ of what we have found ourselves in Christ. Separation, separation. But there's also this sorrow. If you look at verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. In verse, uh, we were looking at verse 1, is 26. Lord, it's time for you to act, O Lord. We, we, we look at the wickedness. We look at God's name being trampled. And we're saying, Lord, you have to act. How long, Lord? How long? We read in Revelation. How long, Lord, will, the, will, we, will we, uh, we suffer and hold on? And God says, a little, little longer till the number of people who would believe would be added. But this urgency in our heart—how long? How long would be as we hear stories from China? You've been hearing stories from China, haven't you? Where they've, they're breaking down church buildings that are registered, removing the crosses. They put. They put cameras. One on the offering box, one on the preacher, and one on the entrance so that they can keep track of what is happening. Interesting. See how God works. Listen to this. There are two, they they always send these two spies, as it were, officials, so that they can see what is happening in church. Recently, I was told from the report at, at the voice of the martyrs, is that they stop sending these two people consistently because they're now getting saved. And so what they do is they keep changing the second person so that they too can keep track on each other. As we cry for God to work, I want us to know that God is working. He is, in his, he is committed to what he said he's going to do, and he is doing it. We cry for when we hear stories coming out of India, Pakistan, and, and Sri Lanka, and, and uh, uh, Vietnam, where, where the, the, there's these forces, as it were, they force the, the, uh, to reconvert back into their faith. And, and we're we saying, Lord, help them. And, you know, their stories, they're not crying for relief from persecution as much as they say, Lord, help, me us, help us to be a good testimony. this urgency with which we cry for God's honor and yet the confidence that as we wait and persevere, he fulfills and completes his great work. We are there. Our feet are stuck in those track. And I want to draw your attention to what the psalmist is saying. It's time for you, O Lord, to act. For your law has been broken, but we don't see despair. We don't see disappointment. We don't see delay as being denial. We don't see him give up, but he perseveres. That's what happens when we return to God's word. Apart from God's word, we will not be able to see the reality of what it is. We can only see circumstantially with our... uh, Naked eyes, if you would, but God allows us to see through the eyes that that are lifted up to His promises and his uh, his purposes. We are fixed on a firm ground, and that is the confidence i want you I want you to turn with me to verse one thirty, which is the which is the verse that uh, probably in this passage is the most famous. We constantly keep coming uh, across that verse in um, in various circumstances and situations, verse 130. I'm going to read it to you in four or five different translations so that the truth of that comes home. It's the teaching of the word that gives light. The revelation of your words bring light. Your instructions are a doorway through which the light shines. The entrance of your word gives light. The understanding of your word brings light to the minds of the ordinary people. What the psalmist has recognized is that when things don't seem as it should be, when my heart cries out in in desperation for his honor and for my relief, I can be rest assured as I come back to God's word because the entrance of his word gives light. The revelation of his word makes me understand who he is and what he's about. And I want to encourage you, therefore, to say God's word is, is, is the one that you need to come back to and, and, and that, that you would enjoy him for who he is through his word. May his name be glorified. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word that you would give us and for your spirit who helps us understand your word. Oh, Father, would you encourage us, strengthen us, and require upon us Help us, Lord, to be disciplined as we say we welcome back to the word. There is no solace. There's no comfort. There's no place we can run to except your word. And to find you speaking to us through your word, through the enabling of your spirit, may that be the rich experience of all of us here, Lord, to know that this is your word, alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword that gives us that discernment, the wisdom that we need for this life and for faith. And so as we wait desperately for your soon appearance, as we say we love your appearance, we pray that our perseverance will continue because of the strength we have found in your word. We thank you for answering our prayers. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, and all God's people said, amen.